0: I think, I think they heard that, too. That's
1: funny. <laughs> We're good.
0: <laughs> Amen. Praise God. Um, Saints, it's good to be here again with you uh, and to fellowship. And I pray that um, today's word would encourage you to, um, we have, we have a lot of catching up to do, because uh, we missed service last week. And then the week before that, we went through First Samuel, and we talked about um, you know, the idea of how God um, uh, provided life. You know? And um, so it was our sermon where we dealt with the idea of abortion, with the issue of abortion, which is a great evil in our country, in our world. And um, so we laid it out, and uh, I think uh, God was glorified by it. And um, so we haven't been in the Gospel of John uh, for about three weeks, really. And um, and so today, uh, we're going to go through the Gospel of John together. We're in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And um, it's a deep prayer. I would say it's uh, where Jesus, you get to see his heart, You get to see uh, something very uh, unique in his prayer. And so, John chapter 17, we're gonna cover verses one through five together. Starting in verse one. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. And to God be the glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I need you right now. We need you right now. Be here with us. We have forgotten That you're here. We've forgotten that you're at where we live and wherever we go. You're even in those places that we at times feel, you know, act like you're not there. You're there. So, Lord, would you stir in us a desire for your glory today? That we would be glory driven today and not driven by the flesh or our hearts. But God, really, at the end of the day, when we're ready to go from this earth, uh, (laughs) what we're going to think most of is you. But Lord, I pray that that would be our every day. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. You use us in spite of us. And so, Lord, I'm begging you, Father, use me. And I'm begging you, Lord, that you would also use the listening of the word to bring conviction of sin repentance, training, and righteousness, that we would not be about consuming information, Lord, but that we would be about consuming the bread of life. And So, Lord, we thank you, and may we leave here today different. God, take my eyes off of people and put my eyes on you. So I pray that I will worship you in preaching, and I pray that we would worship you in listening. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said Amen and amen. Praise God. So uh, verse 1, you can already tell that the author begins with telling us that Jesus had already spoken, and it'd be good for us to go back to chapter 16 to find out what did he say. Um, And so we're going to just go through John chapter 16 to kind of catch up a little bit on where we left off. And so what did Jesus speak before our text? If you remember, I gave four sermons in the gospel, in in chapter 16 of the gospel of John. We did four sermons total. And in verses 1 through 4, starting in John 16, we talked about the price for following Christ. Verses 2 and 3 says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And so Jesus frequently taught at the synagogue, if you remember. And what he said about it was often with a concern and a rebuke because of the hypocrisy in the synagogue. In Matthew chapter 6 and also chapter 23, we looked at examples of Jesus addressing the leadership in the synagogue, that they were found to be hypocritical and actually very brutal to people that they were actually meant to serve. Hypocritical because of wanting to be seen by others and brutal because they would excommunicate and actually flog people in the synagogue. So this was the condition of the people where God was there and God's people were there and they were supposed to congregate there and Jesus, what he was out to do was realign people to follow him and not man. Um, More specifically, he spoke to his disciples who he would not leave alone to themselves. He would tell them that they would remember what he has spoken. If you go to verse 4 of John 16, he says, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus told them these things so that they would remember in the hour of their suffering. In the sermon after we covered verses 5 through 15, this passage showed us the disciples and how they would remember what he said. In verse 26, uh, if you remember going forward, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the way they would remember is being helped by the Holy Spirit. That is why it would be to their advantage that Jesus would go so that the Holy Spirit could be sent to the church. So not only will the Holy Spirit will be sent to bring remembrance of the things Jesus spoke of. We covered that in verse 26, but he will also be our present help with Jesus being our advocate before the father. We're being greatly helped. We're not alone. (laughs) You know, what I mean, we got Jesus before the father. And presently, we have the Holy Spirit helping us here today. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So the world uh, actually needed conviction, and the Holy Spirit's ministry was to bring conviction concerning sin because people wouldn't believe in him, convicting concerning righteousness because Jesus would go to the Father and he would be seen no longer. So we're no longer dependent upon a righteousness of our own. We're dependent upon Jesus' righteousness because he's right. We're right. So anything that comes out of the righteousness of Christ, like good works, or if I feed the poor, or if I do good works in the church, that does not make me right before God. Okay, so works are a result of the righteousness of God, not the means to be right before God. And then the last thing we saw, convicting the Holy Spirit, convicting concerning judgment, it was because the ruler of the world would be judged, Satan. But for the disciples, Jesus said in verse 13, check it, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will de- declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit will guide believers to all truth, which is pre- his present role in our lives. The reason why the last time you were tempted and you overcame wasn't because you thought it was the right thing to do. It was the Holy Spirit in you bringing conviction and guidance. We need him to worship him. We need him to love him. We need him to be right. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to redirect us at times when we actually want to sin. You ever had that moment, you know what I'm saying, when you were about to, you know what I mean, and the Holy Spirit was like, nah, don't do that. Don't go there. You know it's wrong. You know it's dishonorable. I've been there, done that. Matter of fact, I've been there, but I didn't do that. He did that, amen? (laughs) Verse 14, his present role, the Holy Spirit's role here on earth, is not just to bring conviction. It's to glorify God. Verse 14, he will glorify me, the Holy Spirit, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Later, we see Jesus in verse 16 say to them in verse 16 of John 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us a little while? So the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was speaking here in our text. So he began to explain to them in verses 19 to 22 what he meant by leaving them. Go to Verse 21. He gives an example of what it meant to leave and how they would feel actually when he would leave because they were very sorrowful when he talked about leaving them. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So yes, it's gonna hurt you when I leave, but the end result of me leaving it's gonna to be to your benefit. Think about it, so Jesus, the Godman, was beside them saying that it's better if I'm not here with you. It's better if the Holy Spirit is with you. And we talked about this stunning, like, you know, think about this, like, if Jesus was physically here, there's a lot of movies I probably wouldn't go to. There's a lot of things, you know, I'd watch more how I talk to my wife can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, hey, I, I hear y'all. You know, the wives are saying yes. I'd be a lot more careful on how to steward my walk if I really saw Jesus right beside me. And I knew who he was. But he said it's better that he go. So We can't act like he ain't here. The Holy Spirit's here. God the Holy Spirit is in us and working through us. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, the things that he told them about leaving. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the father. So the disciples thought that they knew what Jesus meant when he spoke about leaving them. But he followed asking them a question because they were like, oh, now we know what you mean. And he was like in verse uh, 31 to 32, he says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So this would actually take place when Jesus was arrested. Jesus ended by telling them in verse 33 to encourage them, even though he knew that they would leave him. He said in verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, you're going to have your best life now, free from trials, and your bills are going to be paid. No, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have struggle. You're going to have problems. You're going to have suffering. He promises to the believer, to the disciples, that you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world, yes. amen? So that's the same today. The Christian life isn't a problem-free life. It's a condemned free life. We're free from condemnation. So do whatever you want to me. You can destroy the body, but you can't destroy the soul. The disciples were very sorrowful, and they didn't understand all that Jesus has spoken. They would eventually leave Jesus alone with those who would arrest him. And because they needed help and comfort, Jesus would pray for them. But not only for them, he would pray for his church. Our passage today is the most intimate insight we have with Jesus and the Father. First, we see that Jesus prays to the Father for himself. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples because he's about to leave them. And saints, he lastly prays for us. He prays for you. He thought of you in this prayer. But before we get into that, we're going to get into verses 1 through 5, where we see Jesus praying to the Father for himself. And so our outline for today, from verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 3, uh, the first point, the glory of the Son. We'll see the glory of the Son in verses 1 through 3. Then the life of the saints in verse 3. Actually, the glory of the Son, verses 1 through 2, the life of the saints in verse 3, and then the glory of the Father and the Son in verses 4 through 5. Starting in verse 1, we see Jesus lifting up his eyes. It's the first thing you see. We do have other times where Jesus lifted up his eyes, which literally meant to direct or fix his attention to someone or something very closely. In Luke 6:20 we see Jesus lifting his eyes on the disciples which he did because he was about to teach and preach what he would call the beatitudes. We see this also in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In the Gospel of John John 6:5 we have Jesus lifting up his eyes directing his attention to a large crowd coming toward him. He fixed his gaze. That's what lifting up his eyes mean at what was before him, which meant that his attention was set on what he was looking at, namely the crowd. We do have another time where Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father in the Gospel of John. If you go to John 11, verses 41 through 44, do you remember the story when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Verses 41 through 44, it says, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice with his eyes fixed on the father. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So, the lifting up of his eyes meant that Jesus went from seeing what was around him to focusing and gazing his view at something or someone specifically. Made me think about how we pray. You know, yeah, sometimes I get convicted because I'm like, you know, even when we eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, we be eating. And I'll be like, okay, Father, thank you for this food, whatever. Yes and amen. And then start boom, 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 you know, like getting to the talking. And I just, like that transition, I've forgotten what I've just done. Mm -hmm. The miracle of being able to pray. Jesus wasn't like, okay, Father, you know, and then Lazarus, y'all, you need to get out. He had his eyes fixed on the Father. His gaze was set, like he wasn't distracted. That's what he's doing here in our text. There was another time that we do see where someone could not lift up their eyes. you Remember the story of the Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke 18? Well, it was because he couldn't lift up his eyes because he didn't feel worthy enough. In this parable, Jesus wanted to address those who trusted in themselves. That's why he came up with this parable. And it was those who trusted, check it, in their own own righteousness. They trusted in their own righteousness and they actually treated others with contempt. Jesus spoke of two men in the temple who were praying, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 of Luke 18. You can go there real quick. I just want to point this out to point something that Jesus did in our text. Luke 18 verses 11 through 12 We see the Pharisee, it says, standing by himself, the Pharisee who was self-righteous, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he looked at the tax collector and said, even like this tax collector over here. Then he pointed out what he does in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the tax collector who would have been considered the sinful one in this parable by those listening, in verse 13, check what he does. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector could not direct or fix his gaze or his attention to heaven because he felt his own unworthiness, his own unrighteousness. And yet it was that prayer that was acceptable to God. But newsflash, Jesus doesn't have this problem, though. Jesus had the posture of humility, even with the full assurance of looking into heaven, but it was because he was without sin. So he confidently looked at the Father and pleaded with the Father and spoke to the Father, not because he was, you know, the man, but it was because he was the humbled, sinless son of God. He was without sin. In verse 1, Jesus confidently petitioned the Father without hesitation. And I would argue that it is the same for the believer today. Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. And he spoke about the hour that had come already, the hour of his death. In John 8, 20, we do see the hour being talked about there as when he said, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come, the hour speaking of his death. John 13, 1 says, it tells us specifically what this hour was. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This hour was the hour of his departure. So in this hour, Jesus asked the Father not for deliverance from the hour, but for the Father to glorify him in that hour. You get it? So he's not saying, take me out of this situation. He's saying, no, glorify me in it. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So what exactly did it mean when Jesus asked the Father to glorify him? 47 out of 66 times uh, this specific word glorify is used, and it meant to glorify, to exalt, to praise, or to become exalted. It refers to praising someone for their high and exalted status, or actually someone who's entering into a state of glory and exaltation remember that Jesus was in his humiliation we see that in Philippians 2 verses 6 through 7 who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped it says that he emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men this is Jesus so what Jesus was essentially asking the father for was that the father would acknowledge him as who he was Namely, as the glorified son, which is the acknowledgement of his exalted position. Really, Jesus is praying for the father to give him props. This is the time where people got to see who I am. When the whole time he was walking around like he was like us. Now at this time, he's saying, no, show people who I am. During the Incarnation, Jesus humbled himself, and now he was asking the Father to glorify him in this hour. What amazes me about what Jesus is praying for here is that in his most being humiliated, which was the cross, Jesus was the most glorified. But how? How was it that Jesus was the most glorified on the cross when it looked like he was the most embarrassed on the cross? See, if you were of the world and looking at that cross, you saw a fool, you saw a loser. You saw someone that was defeated. You saw someone who was a criminal who deserved it. But to those of us who have been given life, can you imagine what John was seeing while he was there with Mary? He didn't see a loser. He didn't see a bum. He didn't see a criminal. He saw a lamb. He saw an offering. He saw the justice of God being satisfied. He saw his sin being taken on that cross. But those in the world, they see a fool. Someone who is embarrassed. If the word glory meant praising someone for their high and exalted status, then it would make sense that the cross would be the greatest display of his nature and character. Matter of fact, it was. The cross showed us exactly who God was. It was there that the love of God would be on full display as the sinless son of God hung so that the sins of his people would be atoned for. It was there that Jesus hung and forgave the sins that were worth the punishment and wrath of God. It was there that Jesus provided himself as an offering so that death could pass over us. It was the great Passover. It was there that Jesus defeated sin and death for those who would believe. It was there that the world thought it folly and shameful, yet it was truly the greatest display of salvation and power that freed the people of God from the bondage of sin. It was there that Jesus was glorified by the Father, yet according to the carnal and worldly, Jesus was the most embarrassed. It was there that the Son was given, a loving father to bring in a people who deserve opposite of what was offered. That's where you were born. That's where you were given life. It was at the cross. What he did there in dying was to bring life to those who were dead. That's what happened there. It's hard, I tell you, like, Read scriptures on what took place there, Mm -hmm. the suffering that took place, how he felt abandoned, Mm -hmm. how he, could you have this cup pass me, Mm -hmm. the intensity of it, like he was about to face the very wrath of God, the rejection we deserved, that's why there's songs that talk about, in his rejection, I was accepted, in his death, I've been given life, you know, He was treated like an outcast to bring in people who were outcasted because of our sin. And yet now we've been adopted and brought in because of what happened at the cross. That's why people don't like talking about the cross because it's ugly. It's it's, you know, listen, man, we need to get back to that. Yes, it's foolish to talk about a, a man who hung on the cross and yet. Oh, yeah, really? And he resurrected the third day? Yes, he did. And in doing so, he brought in those of us of saving faith. Jesus was asking the Father to glorify him so that it would show who he was. And who he was exactly was the son sent by the Father to give life in order to give also eternal life to those who were given to him. This is what happened at the cross where Jesus paid it all in order to redeem and deliver us who have believed, that's what he did there. And that's why I love this song. It was actually written by Alvina Mabel Hall back in the 1800s, where she wrote a psalm. I don't know if you knew this. Jesus paid it all. This is what she said. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone came and changed the leper spots and it melt the heart of stone. Mm -hmm. You know who lepers were? Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed in fellowship. They were outcasted outside the city just in case they would die or they wouldn't spread their disease to other people. That was us. Mm -hmm. We were lepers. Mm -hmm. But he changed us. Mm -hmm. Jesus paid it all. Mm -hmm. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but, the butts not in there, I just threw that in there, he washed it white as snow. Yes. Praise the Lord. Yes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So in our text, Jesus said, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. So not only would the cross reveal a son, but also it would reveal a father who gave his son, the giver of the son. Do you remember Genesis 22 where Abraham took his son Isaac to the altar to sacrifice him? But the angel of the Lord stopped him. You remember that? Our heavenly father didn't stop. He went through with it. And it was because Jesus would be an offering for the guilt and shame we all carried. Which, by the way, none of us could atone for. Isaiah 53, 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's a testament to his resurrection. Because if he's like dead and crushed, how can he see his offspring? Well, he would raise on the third day. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This was the driver for the son asking the father to glorify him in that hour. Jesus knew that it was the will of the father to put him to grief so that by his death, Hebrews 2.10, he would bring many sons to glory. It was the will of the father to glorify It was the will of the son to glorify the father and it was the will of the father to glorify the son. That's hard to say. It's like they're tag teaming. You know, being hung on the cross spoke well of the father. It showed him as a giver. It was his will to crush his son. Do you see why Jesus was all about the will of the Father to complete the will of the Father and that's why I say at the forefront of Jesus being able to accomplish what he did because it was hard what he did but what brought him through a lot of people romanticize the gospel I'm sorry you weren't his main object of getting through what he went through he loves you but it's not about you okay so yeah he loves you but you're not all that, though. Come on. <laughs> you're not. You, he's not fixed. And Jesus's main desire wasn't you. Mm-hmm. It was his father. Mm-hmm. Okay, so don't get it twisted. And yes, he loves you, no doubt. And I feel it sometimes. I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you love me. But it's not about me, though. Mm-hmm. The way he endured. The cross was the joy that was before him, the scriptures say. And I have to say, the greatest joy of Jesus isn't his love for you. His greatest joy was the will of his father. Wouldn't it be the same for us? I love you, but sometimes not. it ain't about you, though. When I come to church, no doubt I love y'all, but listen, if it was about y'all, I wouldn't be here. Sometimes I don't like you, sometimes you don't like me, Mm. but I love the Lord. Mm. That's what brings me here every Sunday. That's what drives me into fellowship. Mm. That's what drives me not to sin. Mm. That's why a respect for one another is not enough. The world could do that, Mm. but a love for God, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's why Jesus said in John 434, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his food. That's what he wanted to live on. That's what he was hungry for was the will of God. Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And in verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh and the question has to come up. Authority meaning what? What did it mean here? Authority meant to govern, to control all flesh. Jesus was given authority to execute judgment. We see this in John 5, 27. But when it came to speaking, Jesus was under the authority of the Father. In John 7, 17 through 18, we see that he spoke not on his own authority, but under the authority of the Father. Jesus went on to say in John 8, 28, that he did nothing on his own authority, but he spoke just as the Father had taught him. So when it came to executing judgment, Jesus was given authority. But while he was here on earth, he did not speak on his own authority. Here in his prayer, he is talking about another authority given to him. The authority over our flesh had to do with the dispensing of eternal life. Because he continued to say in verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh. The question is to do what? He says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So Jesus alone had this authority to give eternal life to those who were given to him. So the father sends the son to fulfill his will, which can be found actually in John 6, 37 through 40. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus would do what was necessary to complete the task given to him by the Father, and friends, by looking to the Son and believing on him, one would be given eternal life. And it is those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. Listen, this is a beautiful plan. We call this the plan of redemption, how God the Father and God the Son continues to work through God the Holy Spirit to preserve and keep us to the end. But eternal life doesn't mean living forever. Even the damned will live forever. It's not that. It's not being in heaven forever. So what exactly is eternal life? Well, the answer could be found in verse 3. It's the second point in our scripture. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. He tells us that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Jesus in his prayer defi- defined for us what eternal life is. He begins first to say that eternal life is to know the only true God, God the Father. To know here just doesn't mean to have a knowledge of, like a celebrity or someone famous. We can say we know of them, right? You can say, you know, Drake, you know, whoever those whack rappers are right now. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, whoever whoever it is out there, I don't know. Uh, I don't listen to hip-hop anymore because it's not hip-hop anymore. Um, Anyway, I'm getting some people upset right now, but you can know a celebrity and facts about a celebrity, but you don't know them. You can know where they live. They live in Cali, or you can bring out all the albums they came out. You have a lot of information about a celebrity, but you don't know them. To know here meant to know a person through a direct personal experience which implied a continuity of relationship. It assumed that one would become acquainted and familiar with a person. That's what it means to know. So eternal life did not mean to live forever or to have the right set of facts about God. Eternal life here meant that one had a direct personal experience and a continuity of relationship with the Father that was given to them by the Son to know the Father in a favorable way, to know him as the one who was given eternal life through the Son, who gave eternal life through the Son, which would imply being chosen and given to the Son. Jesus is talking about a salvific knowledge of the Father and of the Son, true saving knowledge, knowledge that brings forth transformation. Like, you don't have to say anything about it. It it just exudes out of you. This love you have for God, you don't have to make it a point. People see your life and they say, he loves the Lord. True saving knowledge of the Father and of the Son is inseparable from having eternal life, which is only possible by knowing the only true God and not just any God. We are talking about the Father, the only true God, who sent the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, saints, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ who was sent. Eternal life also comes from knowing the Son through direct personal knowledge and experience. A continual relationship with the Son is evidence of eternal life. So not only is eternal life given and, attain, and, and not attained by our works, but belief is also given and not attained. Do you know that you believing in Jesus didn't come from you? That was given to you. So me coming to this realization of who Jesus is, that didn't even, I can't, I can't take credit for that. That was a gift from God. Belief is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. It's all a gift. He gave it all. Not only did he give you eternal life by giving you the father and the son through his death, but He even gave you the belief that will bring you into eternal life. So you can't even take credit for any of the work that has been done to redeem you. All of it was done by God and by God alone. Think about this, because if he went through all that trouble, he ain't going to just lose you like that, though. All that work he did, and then for you to be like, now I'm good, it doesn't work that way. He did the work, he completed it, and he'll finish it. Because if not, you have to ask the question, did you have eternal life in the first place? Remember what he said to the, those who work lawlessness? Get away from me. What does he say? I never knew you. You never knew me. You never knew eternal life. You didn't even begin to believe. Did they do works? Yeah, they raised people from the dead. They, they had a lot of experiences, but they did not know him. Our text. Is a knowing that is continual, direct, preserved to the end. So not only does Jesus give eternal life only to those who the Father had given him, belief is also given to those who are given to him. We see this in John 6, 28-29. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So in his prayer, Jesus is asking God the Father to glorify him so that he will glorify the Father. And in giving glory to one another, they would reveal in that hour who they are, the Father and the Son. Which would be that they are eternal life in themselves. You remember John 3, 14 through 15, where Jesus said, And as Moses was lifted up, uh, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That story brings about the how they were bitten by serpents because of judgment and they were dying and then Moses said, put a staff there with the serpent's head on it and everyone who looks to it will be healed. That's what Jesus said he would do at the cross. Anyone who looks to him on the cross and believes will be given eternal life. So saints or even those who having professed faith here today, look to the cross and believe. Do You need salvation today. Look at the cross. But to the saints, I ask, how have we been doing in our lives with this reality of the cross? I think we've taken the cross lightly. The work Jesus did to fulfill all that God had required was done, but at the cost of his own life, he died. And yet, we have problems laying down our lives. It's a burden sometimes. Like, I tell people all the time, like, you know, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor, but man, it's like you're carrying a cross to go to church. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like it's a big trial for you just to sum up energy to wake up and come at one o'clock in the afternoon. That's wild to me. Now, if we get our own building, we might do 11 o'clock. So. I'm just saying, throwing that out there. I'm just saying, even then it's going to be trial and tribulation. But listen, man, he, the way, listen, no one took his life, he laid it down. Jesus was greatly inconvenienced for you. Jesus was not about his own glory here on earth. He definitely was set to do the will of the Father. So if we are asked to follow in his footsteps, saints, then why do we live lives for our own glory? Why are we preoccupied by, by what others think over what others should see, which is eternal life given to us, a life that should put on display the Father and the Son no matter the circumstances. I'm, I'm, speaking, that, I'm speaking to myself. I worry too much about what others think rather than what I should be. Sometimes I, you know, even in preaching, I can tell sometimes when I'm trying to hear something from you. There's times where I preach and y'all look bored to me and I get discouraged. So I try to come up with something mm, funny or whatever and then when, especially when you don't laugh, it's the worst feeling in the world. It's happened. It's happened, it really has, because I'm a man, and sometimes I'm like, why aren't these people saying amen, or whatever, like, they're just sitting there getting information, I'm here, I worked hard on this sermon, you guys are tripping. (laughs) Then I get distracted, Mm -hmm. then I become about you, then I get carnal, and then I leave discouraged. listen man this is not about us it's not about me it's not about how much amens you give or whatever mm-hmm. listen man we're just unpacking God's word together yeah. we're trying to eat this mm-hmm. and you know what it really is sad to see the, for instance the examples of a prosperity gospel word of faith gospel where they glory in, the, in their even their callings in their ministries in their finances in the buildings they got they parade. It's sad because they have some things true, like their identity in Christ. Yes, you're a child of God. Yes, the promises of God have been given to you. But you know what they do? They parade that. They show that off over giving God glory. They brag about health and wealth. They teach that to have suffering is to be in disfavor with God. But listen, eternal life can be given to those who live a life of suffering. You're in a better shape if you're sick your whole life, but have Jesus. And I know people that live that way. The insanity in their teaching is that the Christian life should be far from suffering, and yet it was God the Son who suffered in order to give them life. they are like, not me. I'm not going to suffer, but suffering brought you eternal life. And you're not greater than your master. Even if someone lives an entire life of suffering, they could still have life, eternal life, because to have life isn't to be free from suffering. Our text says it's to know the Father and the Son. You can know the Father and the Son and live a life full of problems and trials because your hope is not in those problems and trials or free from them. Your hope is in life with the Father and of the Son. It's sad to see many in the visible church in our circles, because now i got to tag us, because we we understand the word of faith, prosperity gospel is false. But you know the mistake we do here is to pride in our knowledge of the scriptures. We take pride in how much knowledge we have of them, thinking that in them we have eternal life, when it is they that speak of him. We live affectionless lives. We're more preoccupied with being right than to be with God. Mm. That could happen. Mm. You're you're worshiping a theology of God and not God. Mm. A theology without a doxology is a problem. Your theology, your knowledge of him should stir affections for him. Desiring him. But the Pharisees had all the info had nothing for Jesus other than hatred for him. So let's be careful, saints. Let's be humble. People forget that imperfect churches had always been since the beginning of the church. We have to be careful in taking pride in our knowledge. We have to be preoccupied with being humbled because of what we know of God. Eternal life is not contingent on our present circumstances or ways of doing things, but rather on a saving, continual relationship with the Father and the Son. Eternal life is given to us by grace through faith. Faith is given to us by God the Father, and we will continually know him, even with faults and weaknesses attached. Jesus completed the work that he was given to do here on earth, which was to glorify the Father. And listen, though that work is done, he's continuing to work on us. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ who was sent, brought to us what Jesus had with the Father from the very beginning. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. And that was the glory that Jesus had with the Father from the very beginning. Verses four and five. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So while on earth, Jesus glorified the Father. He made the Father look glorious in the work that he was doing. He accomplished it. It's complete. It is finished. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I was gonna point out that this verse actually does away with oneness Pentecostalism. Jesus existed prior to the incarnation. He had glory with the Father from the very beginning and you know what he's doing in his death? He's bringing us into that divine fellowship with him to enjoy the same benefits that Jesus has with the Father. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what we're given. For whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So saints, let's be careful. Do we love our lives, our earthly lives, to the point of neglecting Jesus? I would encourage you to lose your life. Jesus said, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, but those who lose their lives here will find it. I pray that you would not only profess to know Christ, but that you would possess Christ. So look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and believe today, saints. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Be with us today. My prayer today, Lord, is that they would know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent to have a direct knowledge and experience and continual life with the Father and the Son. Lord, would you grant that today? Give us life. Can people cross over from just having information, Lord? And can you today birth in people's hearts a genuine knowledge of you? salvific knowledge I pray that they would cry out to you Lord say Jesus son of David have mercy that they will cry out to you as who you are the Messiah promised the son of God God the son and Lord for those of us who are Christian who have bought into the idea that we can just get by We know you, we're we're blessed, blessed, but we have not shown affection and desire, conviction. So Lord, I pray that those of us in our church who have a deep desire for your word, that we would do so as worshipers and not just as students. That we would do so through our adoption, not through titles. That we would do so as children. And and not as people who have it all together. Humble us, Lord. We look at the cross and we say the we see the greatest humiliation, the the greatest embarrassment. But Lord, we we understand that's how the world sees it. But when we look to the cross, we see life. We see love. We see the Father and the Son. So Lord, help us today to be those who have conviction, that we would turn away from temptation, not because it's wrong, but because we love you. Would you help us today? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Um, we do communion every week, saints, um, and uh, I want to remind you of what this represents as we do every week. We do this uh, attempting to be obedient. I want to take you to Matthew. I've been going to Matthew a lot to do this. And uh, Jesus, on the night that he was being betrayed by Judas, was preparing for the Passover meal. Um, And he gave us a representation of that event that we talked about today in the cross. The cross was the place where, like back in Egypt, they were told to actually smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and windows so that when the spirit of death came, the spirit of death would actually pass over the houses and not kill the firstborn. Jesus on the cross... What he did there. He looked at every one of us who will come to faith and smear us with his blood. So that death could pass over us. That's what he did. And he gave us these elements to remember that Passover. To remember what he's done. Um, He is the bread of life. We remember him as that and through his blood we've been delivered from all unrighteousness he doesn't look at us as sinful and as deserving of his wrath but because of the blood of Christ we are clean (laughs) no stains no accusations God not saying you dummy you know, saying, I love you. you I died for you. So, Lord, would you help us today, observing this, and be honorable to you. If there is someone here, Lord, that has fallen short of your glory, that knows you, that believes, Lord, I pray you would show them your love and forgiveness mm-hmm. that came through the body broken and the bloodshed. If you're here today and you don't know the lord jesus christ i would ask and the scriptures command that you not partake because you're still in your condemnation this has not applied to you but i would say repent and come to saving faith today that you will come to know him the only true god in jesus christ who was sent saints would you stand up with me and let's partake of this together